Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. At the present time, in my own personal Bible reading, I find myself in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I have been looking at a new commentary by a man by the name of Dr. Gordon Fee on the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. And as I have been living with it, something has come into focus for me that uh, I would like to share with you this morning. The indications, Dr. Fee says, are that the book of 1 Corinthians was written very early in Paul's ministry. In fact, he dates it about 51, somewhere between 51 and 54 A.D. So you see, that comes somewhere between 20 and 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it was not written to Jews in Jerusalem or in Israel Rather, it was written to Gentiles, former pagans who lived in, on the Greek peninsula, who lived in the city of Corinth. So in that quarter of a century, Christianity had moved from Israel on westward across Turkey and into, and into Europe, into Greece. And now there is a body of believers at Corinth, and Paul is writing to them. One of the things that is very clear, very quickly in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first one, is the centrality of Christ to that early church. I don't know what you experience when you live through what we went through a few moments ago in singing, but the purpose of all that is to bring us to his feet, bring us before him, and to bring us to worship him. Because at the heart of the gospel, is the person, the living person of Jesus Christ. In the second chapter of Paul's first Corinthian letter, he says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that Paul said, as far as I'm concerned, the only message that I have is the message of Christ and him crucified. So as Paul moved about the Mediterranean basin, that was his official responsibility in the kingdom of God. As an apostle of Christ was to proclaim the message of Christ. But that was not only Paul's official task. If you read the letter to the Galatians, which was written in a comparably early period, very early in the life of the church, you will find in the closing chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 14, he says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which I am crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. So you find that there Paul is saying, it's not just my message. 
Christ is not just my message. Christ is my inner joy. Christ is my glory. Now, I don't know what glory means to you. It's not a word that we use a great deal in our secular age of which we are a part. But what I understand it to be is, it's the thing that if you give me a moment, I can rave to you about. I have a love affair running with him. And I'd rather talk about him than anybody else, because he is the joy of my life. Now, that fits with something he says in his Philippian letter, which was written later. He is now in prison, writing to those Christians in Philippi. And he says to them, for me to live is Christ. Speaks very simply and says, you want to know about my life? For me to live is Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? Those three affirmations about Jesus Christ by Paul, he says, he's my message. He says, he's my joy and he's my life. Now, there are other images in the New Testament that are used to say a very similar thing. We don't have time to deal with many, but just let me mention three that uh, are supportive of that, corroborative of that same thrust by Paul. If you read Peter's letter, the first letter of Peter, you will find that when he speaks of Jesus, he says he's the chief cornerstone. Now, he says, there many have rejected him, but he's the one on which the building is supposed to be built and on which you can find the purpose of that building, the whole structure. He's the one who gives it his, its identity and its purpose. He's the chief cornerstone. Now, of course, he was picking up a quotation from Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks and says, the Lord has laid in Israel a chief cornerstone. And he's supposed to be the cornerstone on your life and the cornerstone on mine. Back in 1 Corinthians, you will find that Paul uses another image. He says this in chapter 3, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, uh, I read that for many years saying there are many foundations you can build on, but Jesus is the best, but that's not what he says. He says, he's the only foundation, for other foundation can no man lay. And the person who doesn't found his life on Christ is living a life without foundation. It's worse than a ship without an anchor. And it's worse than a ship without a compass, because there is no foundation there, subject to the whims and fancies of life. There is another expression which is used in the, in the New Testament about him, that he is the end. The Greek word is telos. And you know what a telescope is. The scope part means you can see, and the tele means you can see all the way to the end. And in the New Testament it says that the end of every life is Christ. In the book of Revelation, the, the name that is used in the address to the Laodicean church is, he's the Amen. He's the final word on every single life. Now, Christ then for the Christian is what it is all about. 
Now, what should be our relationship to him and what are we supposed to do with him? I want to mention quickly four things. The first is that uh, we need to know about him. Now, the average person would think, well, you don't need to talk to an audience at Asbury College about knowing about him. But I think I probably do. Because do you know many of us, our pictures of Jesus are not in a very close identity with the reality of who he really is. I know a young man who found himself an exchange student in Europe. And he was lonely, and so he picked up a New Testament and he began to read it. He had grown up in the church, was a member of the church. And now an exchange student overseas, and he said, as I read the New Testament, he said, I fell in love with Jesus Christ. And he said, I wanted to give my life to him. Now, are you going to tell me that growing up in the church and hearing sermons every Sunday and going to Sunday school every Sunday and having America as his context, he didn't know about Christ? He knew what a lot of people said about him. But do you know, most of the people that I've known who have rejected Christ have rejected a Christ that never really existed. You see, that's the great tragedy of a film like the one that has produced such controversy in recent days. Because, you see, the typical kid can go look at that and draw his conclusions about who Jesus is. And they will be wrong. Do you know it's possible to be a senior in Asbury College and not know properly about Jesus? Because the only way you can know is to expose yourself fully and carefully and intently to the Gospels and to the New Testament. And as you expose yourself, you may find that he's not at all what you have heard he is. And you may find that you want to do what my young friend from Europe did. He said, I found I wanted to love him and give myself to him. Are you sure that your picture of Jesus Christ is not a caricature of the real person? Most of the people who find themselves hostile to Christianity are hostile on grounds for becoming Christian. Now the second thing, we need to confess him. If you will read the New Testament, you will find that that's what we are told to do. It begins in the Gospels. Jesus had spent three years with his disciples, and he said, who do you think I am? Tell me who I am. Make your confession about me. And after three years, it's significant to me that he didn't ask them for three years. Because they had three years to observe him, to listen, to get to know him. Jesus says, tell me who you think I am. Make your confession. You know, uh, I got into this early this morning. I decided I don't know what the word confess means. So I pulled out uh, my dictionary and checked, and it's, the word confess is made up of two elements. The first, the con, is the Latin expression, preposition, which means with. And the second, the fess part 
comes from a Latin verb, fatior, fasus, fatere. And that word means to own or to avow. Do you know what it means to confess Jesus Christ? It means to look at somebody and say, I identify with, I believe in him and I identify with him. I believe he's who he says he is and I want to hook my star to his. I want to hook my life to his. Now, I love the fact that the Christian life begins with a confession in which you confess that you want to identify with him. Because it doesn't have, you don't have to say a thing about you. And I don't have to say a thing about me. So oftentimes we think that a Christian is a person who's, who is a Christian because of who he is. No. A Christian is a Christian because of who he believes Jesus is. You see, it is owning him and avowing him. You see, that's what Peter should have done in the courtyard that night. When the girl looked at him and said, aren't you one of his? He didn't need to say, yes, I'm not ashamed of him. All he would have had to have said is, you scare me to death. And I'm the weakest of the weak. And I'm not an example of what a Christian is supposed to be. But I'm related to him. And I believe in him. And do you know what would have happened? If he had done that, he would have walked out of that court victoriously. Because I want to say something to you. There is something that always happens to a person when he confesses his identification with Jesus Christ. He begins to find out who he or she is. And he begins to find out some of the fullness of the grace of God that is available for the likes of you and me. And if you want to be a stronger Christian, all you need to do is say to somebody, I'm not much of a disciple, but I believe in him, and I want to identify with him, and I want to hook my life to his. Now, we have a friend, many of us here, his son graduated from Asbury, the family. More than one member of the family attended here. He is the United Methodist Evangelist from Texas. His name is Ed Robb. Now, this summer, he was in a hunting, on a hunting trip with some of his close friends. And he had invited on that trip a man who is a personal friend of mine. And in the midst of the hunting, there was a flush of birds, and as they flew up, my friend unloaded his shotgun. And Ed Robb was the recipient of a good chunk of the of the shot that was in that shell. And as he received the impact of all that shot in his body, he collapsed. And between the time the shot hit him and between the time he hit the ground, he cried out in a loud voice, I believe in Jesus Christ. And who shot him said, it was so loud, I thought they could hear him in the inner recesses of China. Now, you know, I was interested in the reaction of Ed Robb, recipient of a load of shots, 
life perhaps in danger, headed into another world. He wanted the other world to know side he was on and to whom he took this star. And I think there was something on the other side that said, three years. Those are the kind of people I'm looking for who will identify with me. Now, there's a third thing. It's one thing to know about him, and it's another thing to confess him. It's another thing to know him. You see, you can learn about him in an intellectual operation. You can confess him in a volitional act. It can be an act of a moment. That's the normal way. But to get to know him is much more existential and far more personal. Because, you see, at the heart of the Christian gospel is the belief in the resurrection, that he is alive. In fact, he is as alive as your roommate or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. He's as alive as your professor or he's as alive as your student. And because he is alive as a person, you can come to know him. Now, that's not easy for you and me. Because, you see, we're used to depending on physical presence. We're used to depending on body language to tell us how the person feels about us. We're used to listening to physical voices speaking and words which are orally spoken and heard. We're used to listening to inflections of physical sound voices. We're used to particular vocabulary to let us know how the other person relates to us. You've got to learn another vocabulary. You've got to learn another kind of body language. You've got to learn other dimensions of interpersonal relationships to know him. But do you know it's possible to know him? I picked up an old hymn book in my uh, study early this morning and turned and found that the second hymn in the hymn book was one that we don't sing very much. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the road and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. The joys we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Do you know there are joys for me in communion with him that you will never know? The beautiful side of that is there are joys for you in communion with him that I will never know. Now that's very biblical. May not be the greatest hymn ever written, but do you know what the climax of the creation story was? It was God's first creatures, man and a woman, in the cool of the day, walking with him. Now, you know, that's the difference between creative, effective Christian living and the ordinary. When you get to the place where you recognize his voice for you. There'll be times when you'll say, well, my roommate doesn't, he can do that. And you'll, he will say, yes, but I want you to be different. His relationship to me is my business and his. 
I want you to be mine. I hope you learn to know about him while here more. I hope you make your confession, but I hope also you come to know him. Where you don't have to say, there's any question in my mind and heart about the resurrection. I've met him, and I know him. Fourth thing, we're looking through. We need to crown him. That's the corollary of that first one, isn't it? If he is who he says he is, the Christ of God, the Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, then if I know him for who he is, I ought to let him be who he is. I ought to let him be Lord, supreme in my life. His mother understood that. I don't know how much she understood intellectually, but there was something in her heart of heart and I'm glad that your faith and your experience can go sometimes beyond your head. When they were at Cana of Galilee in the beginning of his public ministry, and the wine had run out, you will remember, she turned and told him, and then looked at the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do. You and I pray the Lord's Prayer. And as the years pass, it becomes much more precious to me. And one of the things we pray every time we pray it is, Thy kingdom, thy rule come. Thy will be done on earth. That means in Dennis Kinlaw's life, the way it is in heaven. You know, usually we have to walk with him a little while before we understand all the means to crown him. But somewhere there needs to be in your life and mine a commitment that is as clear as our commitment to confess him. That is, that he shall reign within our hearts and minds, personally, individually, in, in ourselves, in us alone. I hope you have a good day today, and as you begin a new year, I hope you will set as one of your objectives that Christ shall be central. He'll be the cornerstone. He'll be the foundation. He'll be the end for which you live.